1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26, if you have your Bibles with you. The title of my sermon today is The Call of God. The Call of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26 following. <clears throat> For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, here, Paul is asking us to consider our calling. And I want to speak to you today about the twofold calling of God. God calls us in two ways. The first calling of God is that he calls us to his son as savior for the forgiveness of our sins. The Holy Spirit is working right now in people's lives and he is working and calling them in their heart and through events and people and situations to a place where they will be ready to recognize their need of forgiveness of sins from Jesus to recognize that Jesus died for their sins and rose again and is seated at the right hand praying for us right now. The first call is a call to the salvation of your soul. But linked to that and coming out of that primary calling to forgiveness is the call to be a minister of God in this generation. How many of you know you're all ministers of God? There's no such thing as lay minister divide, like there's a cleric and there's, you are the ministers of God. The fivefold ministry exists primarily to prepare God's people for ministry. And so here Paul is speaking about that call, not only to forgiveness, but through forgiveness to be Christ's hands and feet on the earth today. We are the body of Christ. And so he asks us to consider to think and to reflect about this calling in our lives. And isn't it interesting that as he reflects with the Corinthians, now, the Corinthians were in a mess. The problem with the Corinthians is they had brought the world's thinking and the world's values into the church. They were talking about who was better than who and who did they, I follow Peter, well, I follow Apollo. And, and they were exhibiting themselves and, and putting themselves forward as being God's man or woman of power for the hour. And it was all about them and who was better than somebody else. And just before this passage, Paul had said, hey, I came to you in weakness and I, I preached Christ crucified. I preached Christ crucified and my attitude is Christ crucified. And the Jews were looking for more signs and, and, and the Gentiles scoffed at my message, but that's what I've come to you. All I have is the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And then he's saying, consider your calling in the light of the cross of Jesus. 
Not only that you're called to forgiveness, but you're called to action and ministry today, wherever you find yourself. And then he considers the type of people that were called. And it's an incredible thing. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth, not many influential, not many with high-powered degrees, not many with high-powered political careers, not many with wealth, not many with great sporting and athletic ability, not many on the forefront of media or news. On the contrary, we find that what God has a preference for in his calling is the foolish in the eyes of the world, is the weak in the eyes of the world. And notice he did say, though, not many of you. He didn't say not any of you. So there may be that there's some here today are watching and, and you are something in the eyes of the world. You're prominent in some area. Uh, you, you were born perhaps with a silver spoon in your mouth or perhaps God has put you in a place of prominence or you came to Christ out of a place of prominence. It doesn't say not any, but it says not many. And uh, you should be doubly grateful that you're saved if you're somebody that's somebody that the world uh, thinks highly of. It's a double miracle that you got saved. It's a miracle anybody gets saved, a miracle of God. But it's a double miracle if you're somebody that the world thinks is important that you got saved and you should be doubly grateful. Not many, but some. But most of us that are called... We came from backgrounds that are humble, common. Jesus said, I have come to preach the gospel to the poor. God has a bias for the poor, a bias for the very, very poor, but also a bias for the common people. The people that, that nobody, the movers, the shakers, don't consider us to be anything, don't consider us to have anything. Maybe you look at yourself and you say, well, I don't think this world or this society would notice if I was gone yesterday. Maybe my friends or my close family, but that's all. I'm not really having any impact in, in this world. Maybe sometimes, like myself, you feel overwhelmed and over overawed by the satanic forces that are seeking to push back the gospel in Great Britain and Europe. And you think, what can we do against such powerful politicians, such powerful media moguls, such powerful people out there wielding all this worldly power? Who are we? What difference can we make? Well, God is showing us here that although we may in their eyes be nobodies, and maybe we may in our eyes be nobodies, God has called the nobodies. He's called the disenfranchised. He's called the weak. He's called those that are powerless, those that think they have very little to offer. He has called those that are the anonymous ones in this world, and he has called them to become his servants and to turn this world upside down, right side up for the kingdom. It's a powerful calling, this. You see, what, the, what, what, what is powerful in the world is not powerful in the kingdom. The Gentiles seek power structures. The uh, Corinthians were seeking who's in charge of who. Who's the big man of God? Who's the big woman of God? Who's the chief? But Jesus says the greatest amongst you is the one who what? 
serves. Jesus, the greatest of all, said, I came not to be served, but to serve. Why? Because there is tremendous gospel kingdom power in love and service. The greatest of you will be the one that is the servant amongst you. God has a habit of using the things that the world despises to defeat the world itself. Look at the promise that's here for you and I. We may not have come from somewhere. We may feel that we have very little to offer. We may feel overwhelmed by the powerful people in the world today. But God has called us not only to forgiveness, but he's called us to bring the kingdom into our families, societies, our nation. Let me tell you, God has not finished with Britain. God has not finished with Europe. The fact that you're sitting here today is a testimony that God is not finished, but he is about, I believe, to begin something new. That's what we're crying out for. Lord, don't leave us to our own devices because that will just lead us to disaster. But God, somehow intervene in this nation, intervene in our family, intervene in our city, intervene in Europe. Take these powers and push them back defeat the powers ranged against you and bring in the power of the Holy Spirit through your church. Your prayer in the Holy Spirit and the will of God is more powerful than the greatest commands of the greatest politicians in the world. And look what God's called us to do. He says, he's chosen the foolish to shame the wise. We're not just the foolish, we've come to defeat the powers of this world in the name of Jesus, not through their methods, but through kingdom principles. Now, when it says shame the wise, it doesn't mean so much embarrass them, but that word shame, what it means is to vindicate God. God will be vindicated through us. He will expose the false powers that are ranged against him in this world. And he's going to use you and I to do it. Not only that, it says that those that he has chosen, the weak will shame the strong. Jesus was at his strongest when he was hanging on the cross at his weakest. I mean, they scoffed him. It looked like it was all over for him. Even the disciples had run away. There he was, weak, naked, pinned to the cross, blood bleeding out of him. It looked like it was all over for Jesus, but actually it was the beginning of the end of the satanic rule of mankind. It was the beginning of the end of the darkness of sin. It was the beginning of the end of the power structures of this world. It was the beginning of a resurrection church that would turn this world right side up. Nothing's changed. Jesus is on his throne. Our weakness is his strength. God is going to put us in places where we will not be able to boast in our strength because we know that what God has done through us is impossible for us, but possible for God. He's going to turn things, he's going to deal with these strong people through his weak church. He chose the load, the despised in the world, And even the things that are not, things that are nobody, people that that are disenfranchised, people that don't, don't feel that they're making any difference, people that wonder how can God use me. He's going to use those very people to bring down the powers of hell. 
You say, can God use me? Well, I downloaded this. I often see this on Facebook or or on the internet, and and it's a bit rough, but it, it makes a point. I'll read it to you. The next time you feel like God can't use you, just remember, Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson had a long hair and was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair and was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked for three years. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer and Lazarus was dead. God can and will use you. If you think that you're disqualified to be used by God, you have just discovered the very qualification to be used by God. If you think you're unable, if you think you don't have the power, the influence, if you think you're a nobody, if you think... If you think you're just one of the many, many million, you're wrong. God has called you by name and God will use you and he'll use me together and others to turn things around. You see, every little thing you do in the name of Jesus, every little thing somebody else does in the name of Jesus, every little thing that I do in the name of Jesus, all our little acts, of love, of kindness, of reaching out, however little you think they are, your little and my little and their little, put together will shake a nation. Don't don't despise the day of small things. The kingdom of God is like a seed. And as you continue to sow the best way that you know, kingdom seeds and kingdom principles in your life, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, Seeds wherever you can of love, of gospel, of integrity. As we begin to do this, we are not just sowing. We are sowing for a harvest of righteousness. Paul says, don't weary in doing good. One day you will reap a harvest of righteousness. Let's go now to John chapter 15, verse 1. I'm speaking to you today saying, talking about the twofold call of God, that first he calls you to forgiveness, and secondly, he calls you to minister and turn the world right side up and defeat the powers of this age. Here in John chapter 15, verse 1, reading, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. See, here's the twofold call. You see, in order for you to bear fruit for Christ, you need to be clean. 
clean before the Father. How can you be a tool in God's hands when there is a barrier between you and God, a barrier of sin? All of us have fallen short of God's standards. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. There's no one righteous by themselves. No one that's done right, thought right. Nobody that has met God's standards. Somebody has to meet God's standards on our behalf. Somebody has to take our place. Somebody has to take our sins. Somebody has to pay the penalty or else we're going to have to pay the just penalty of our rebellion against God and our sin against God. God takes sin personally. That's why Jesus was sent by the Father to take our sins on his body on the cross. He is the substitute. He is the sacrifice. He took your place and my place as he carried the sins of the world on the cross. He even received the judgment of his Father upon himself that was reserved for our sin. Powerful, powerful. Jesus died that we might live. Jesus died that we might be made clean in him, not of ourselves, but he did it on our behalf. He credited it to our account. Our account with God was in such overdraft, zillions and zillions of pounds worth, as it were, overdraft that we could never pay back. But Jesus on the cross paid every part of our debt to God. And he didn't just leave us at zero. He credited into our account all his righteousness. Not only has Christ wiped the slate clean, paid off your overdraft if you believe in him. He's made you in a joint account holder of his own account and you have zillions and zillions and zillions of pounds in your account. There is so much grace available for you. Why has he done this? It's the call to forgiveness. And so the rest of our ministry should come out of thanksgiving and gratefulness. You don't serve God out of condemnation or because some preacher brandishes the fear of hell or judgment over you. If you believe in Jesus that he died and rose for you, you have no more fear of hell. You've been made clean already by your faith in Jesus and his death. Now, as we meditate on everything that Jesus did for us, is there anything that we couldn't do for him? We still make mistakes. We still struggle with unbelief. I understand that. But the call of God to service comes out of a heart of thanksgiving that he has called us to forgiveness. Here we, we're clean because of the word of the gospel. And because we're clean, we can be put in the vine, which is Christ. And in that vine, his strength, his blessing, his anointing will allow us to bear fruit in our calling on the earth today. Moving down to chapter 15, and ver- same chapter, John 15 and verse 13. 13 to 16. Actually, sorry, verse 16, 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter five. A few weeks ago, I 
spoke on Luke chapter 5 and the call of Peter. And here in Luke chapter 5, we see another example of the twofold call. God calls us first to an experience of forgiveness of sins. And then secondly, out of that, he calls us to discipleship, to follow him and to be his body, his hands and feet on the earth. Now, you know the story of Luke chapter uh, uh, 5 and verse 5. Now, Peter is at work. He's been fishing all night. He's aware of the ministry of Jesus, but he hasn't connected the ministry of Jesus to his career yet. They're separated. He knows of Jesus' ministry because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Don't know if Peter was pleased about that or not, but he did anyway. He also knows just before this chapter that Jesus is going around having revival meetings. I mean, people are getting healed. People are getting saved. Miracles are taking places and people don't want him to go. They're saying, stay, don't go, don't go. He says, I've got to go and preach elsewhere. And so here's Peter in his career and he cannot see the connection between Jesus's Sunday ministry, revival meeting ministries, and his fishing business. There's no connection in his mind. They fished all night, they caught nothing. Jesus comes and the crowds are so close to him on the sea that they're right up against him. He can't see over them. He can't preach to them as a crowd. So he asks Peter for his boat and Peter gives him his boat and they take the boat out a little bit. So there's a little bit of distance between him and the crowd so that he can address them. Jesus has taken, taken Peter's business failing business. He's taken Peter's business and he is now using it as a platform for the kingdom of God and for the gospel. There's a lesson there for us and what God has called us to do in the, Jesus wants the boat of your career as a platform for preaching the kingdom. Then after that, Jesus says to Peter, throw your net on the other side. You know the story, Jesus, it's not the right time to throw the net the optimum time was at night. That's gone. I'm a fisherman. You're a carpenter. I don't tell you how to fix tables. Don't tell me how to, how to work in my career. You're doing revival meetings, but I've, I've got to put fish on the plate here. But in the end, he says, well, at your word, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. You know the story, he throws it over, they get such a catch, the nets start breaking. They call over another boat and the boat starts sinking. And what's, what's Peter's response to all of these things, well, his response is that he hears the first call to forgiveness. His reaction is to fall at Jesus' knees. Verse 8, but Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, Lord. The crowds before this were saying, stay with us, Jesus, stay with us. They were enjoying their revival meetings and that was wonderful. Stay, give us more miracles, give us more healing, give us more words of blessing. But Peter had a deeper encounter. He didn't just see the blessing, but he went beyond the blessing to the truth and epiphany behind the blessing. He thought, who is this man? And then knowing who Jesus was, realizing who this man was to the next degree, he realized who he was. Woe is me, said Isaiah, for I am undone because I've realized who God really is. And out of Isaiah's 
undone, out of his realizing what a sinner he was, God said, who will go? And out of his realization of being weak and sinful, and out of that realization, he said, I'll go. Peter realized he needed forgiveness. He realized what was happening, the Holy Spirit was working the inward and the effectual call of God was on him and he'd come to conviction of sins and he realized that God was God and that he was a fallen human being in need of forgiveness and he was the man that would give him that forgiveness. His faith wasn't perfect or mature, but it was enough to recognize. And what did Jesus do? He called this sinner and he said, he, didn't, he was so gracious, he didn't even... He knew, Peter knew he needed forgiveness. He didn't even need to address it. He said, Peter, you will be catching living people. He called him, called him in his own language, in his own career language. You will be catching living people. And they took their boats and they left everything and followed him. That was the second call. Final illustration from scripture Still in Luke chapter 5, verse, um, sorry, Luke, Luke chapter 5 now, verse 27, the call of Levi. Two calls, call to forgiveness, call to follow Jesus in discipleship. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector. They were the worst people you could possibly think of in those days. They, were, they, they, they would cheat people. They would take the widow's last mite. They were, they were like loan sharks. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, he called him. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in the house. And there was a large company of tax collectors, even more of these loan sharks and and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, or those who think they're righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here again, you see a call. He didn't call the Pharisees. Not many. Some he did. He didn't call the scribes. Well, not many. One or two. But he went out and he called the least likely people that you could. But one thing was common amongst them. They were sinners and they knew it. And in that call, it's a twofold call, but it's, it, it's, it's together. In that call, not only did he call them to forgiveness, but at the same time, he called them to discipleship, to follow him and to service. It doesn't say that Levi asked for forgiveness of sins. It's taken for granted. He couldn't believe that Jesus had called him to be one of his disciples. Not many called great, not many called famous, not many called righteous, not many called Powerful, would you have chosen the disciples that Jesus told, chose? Someone imagined that Jesus, as he was choosing his disciples, they imagined what it would be like if he'd gone to a management consultancy and asked them to vet the disciples he was thinking of choosing. And they devised a letter to Jesus, son of Joseph, 
from Jordan Management Consultants. I'm going to read it to you. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The, the profiles of all the tests are included, and you'll want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor would include gen some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have a team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> James, the son of Alpheus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leadings, and they have both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. <laughs> One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. <laughs> All of the other profiles are self-explicitly. We wish you success in your new venture. Look who Jesus chose. Look who he chose. Look who he chose. Look what he did with those that he chose within a generation. The, the, the known world had been turned upside down by these nobodies, by these nobodies. God's movement is a people movement. Christianity is a people movement. It's not about the stars. It's not about the great figures or the preachers or any of these things. The Corinthians thought it was. It's not about, it's about ordinary people following the Lord in their weakness and doing what they can in his strength. Where would John Wesley be without the thousands and thousands of Methodists that started home groups and cell groups and witnessed where they were and, and stood for the gospel in righteousness, where would he be? He'd be nowhere. He was nowhere without that army. As great as William Booth was, how great would he have been 
without the armies of Salvation Army soldiers who'd go into pubs and clubs and into places of degradation and feed the poor and preach the gospel and have stones hurled at them and be injured for the sake of the gospel. Who were these thousands and thousands of people? We don't know their names. God knows their names. The, the army of the Lord is a hidden army. It's a forgotten army. It's a weak army. It's an army that know they're sinful before God, but are saved by the grace of God and the blood of Christ. They're an army that God can begin to trust in positions of power. They're an army that they know that whatever they find their hand to do for the Lord, they will do. They're not afraid of the little things, the little acts of obedience, the little words, the little followings, the next step and the next step and the next step. As we take those little steps together, giant strides are taking place for the kingdom of God. Do not despair, despise your small steps in the kingdom life. Do not despise yourself. God chose you so that no man would boast, so that this army of nobodies, this army that is dismissed by this present world philosophy, this army would rise in the houses and the streets and the department stores and the buses and the schools and wherever you find yourself to be and simply on the principle of love, service and refusing Refusing to deny Christ one inch, follow him and serve him.